Mighty Jesus, we have been um, transformed by your gospel, and it must have central place. It must have first place. Um, you must be preeminent and made central. Um, and so, God, we do that through a multiplicity of ways as a community, God. We do that through worship and music. We do that through talking about announcements that show that our gatherings are more than just about Sunday morning. Um, we also do it through giving um, to finance your kingdom effort. Um, we do it through communion. We do it through baptism. We do it through greeting uh, visitors to show hospitality. But there's something um, that a gathering just doesn't seem to be a gathering without. And that's the preaching and teaching of your word. Because of the sacredness, not of the pulpit, but of the word of God. We set our ears to listen and our hearts to respond in thankfulness and gladness that you have not left us in the orphanage of the cosmos of the world. But God, you have, by your grace, given us the word of God and the Holy Spirit as a guide through this world of darkness. So let the words of my mouth and let the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord God, my strength and my redeemer in whom we all trust, hopefully, in Jesus' mighty name, we pray everybody that agreed with that said, amen, amen, amen. We are still in the book of Ephesians, going through it line by line, um, precept upon precept, walking through um, the book of Ephesians. How's everybody doing this morning? Y'all all right? All right, okay, I just want to make sure. Um, but, but, but I've been very, very excited about God's working in us through this book study. Um, and as, as, as I was preparing for today, praying and doing exegetical work, theological work, homiletical work, heart work, prayer work, I, I, I began thinking about the different facets of what we do um, and, and how we hear the word of God. I think, I think, I think we, as, as the people of God, need to be trained in how to hear a multiplicity and diversity of formats in relation to the communication of the Word of God. You know you're maturing when you can receive a message intellectually, emotively, and volitionally. In other words, you, 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 can, you can listen to something and have your emotions stirred to be able to follow Jesus more uh, with, with, with white hot fire during the week. But then volitional practice also, in other words, not being hearers of the word, but what? But, but then there's a part, there's a part that oftentimes gets forgotten, and that's Romans 12.1. We're not going to go there right now, but be ye transformed by the renewing of what? Your? That's very important. So, 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 so as we get transformed by the renewing of our mind, we need to be able to hear a diversity of messages because we need to see the power and richness of the word in ways that go beyond of just meeting us where we are, but taking us beyond where we are. So when we look at a 2 Timothy chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, verse 15 and 16 and 17, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for what? Teaching or doctrine. Say doctrine. Say reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Yeah, those are, the, those are the ways you should be trained. So you should be trained to be trained to be trained this way. 
Are you with me? And so, so, so today we, we're going we're gonna to walk through this text line by line like we usually do. But, but, but I want you to posture your mind for intellectual transformational engagement. Because we need to be able, by God's grace, um, 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 to be able to be nurtured by the word of God in such a way where God is taking us beyond where we are. So today, we're, we're going to get in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going uh, we, 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 to go to verse 11 through 13 today. And Paul is working through, talking through the Ephesian Christians about a multiplicity of subjects as it relates to redemption. Say redemption. In verses 1 through 10 of chapter um, 2, he talks about our vertical relationship with God. In other words, there was vertical disconnection, but then through Christ there was vertical reconnection. However, in light of that, the vertical nature of a relationship, no one can have a vertical relationship with God and not see horizontal impact. So therefore, he talks about in verses 1 through 10, vertical. Now he moves in an interesting place. He moves um, in this passage horizontally. And as he moves horizontally, he, it seems like it's going to be redundant because we already spent a lot of time a few weeks ago on depravity. And how, however, <laughs> he seems to backtrack, but really he doesn't backtrack, he expands. And in verse 11 through 12, he expands on our, not merely our separation from God, but our separation from one another. And what he's building the foundation for in the book of Ephesians is really one of the sub-thematics that we will see throughout the corpus of the book, especially in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, Ephesians chapter 4 will talk about one of the subtopics of the book called unity. Say unity. Unity is one of the most important things in the Christian life that Christians must embody. Christians must understand and Christians must be for. That means we will fight for this. We will die for this. And we will use everything that God has given us to nurture and keep that. You know, I remember one time back in the Dizzle when I was at a another spot, and I was at a church, and I was frustrated with that church. I was frustrated, angry. I'm getting in the text. I was frustrated, and what I did is, is I, I had gone through a bunch of different changes at that different local community of saints, and what I did was I began talking to my pastor about some of the challenges that I was dealing with over the journey. Some horrific things happened, right? And then I knew that my wife and I was time for us to dip. However, when, I, when my wife and I dipped, we, we, we meditated on Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. Say, how can we in our leaving and frustration continue to keep the bond of peace? And, 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 so, and, and, and so one of the things that was very, very important to us is that we didn't want to see shipwreck, we wanted to pray, get on our knees, and see transformation that our verbiage couldn't bring, only what our knees can call out for God to bring. Somebody ought to hear me. And so Paul here is building a theological foundation for unity. And the importance of a theological foundation I'm finding is as I began engaging this guy um, on YouTube who is trying to convert Christians to a particular religion, and I'm looking at the responses under his video from Christians. And one of the things that I'm seeing is I'm seeing great emotional responses to what he's saying, but not biblical responses to what he's saying. So what's happening, I just believe because I believe. Well, no, God don't teach us to believe because we believe. He teaches you to believe something in particular about what you believe. Therefore, you need to be able on some level to functionally articulate your heart based on the heart of God, based on the word of God. Therefore, today, we're going to do one of these doctrinal joints. We, today, we're going to see the word of God being profitable for doctrine because this is going to build the framework for us when we get to Ephesians chapter 4 to begin to say, Dag, the lights are on for us now. We're getting help now, and I got clarity on why unity is, is, is purposeful for the Christian because it was practically accomplished through the cross. So we're going to learn theologically what we should agree on 
and how to disagree when we disagree yet still walk in unity. So he comes here in this section, and we're going to tag this text five degrees of separation. Five degrees of separation. Let's, let's get in the text, family. He says in verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember that at once, one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. <laughs> I like that. Called the uncircumcision. By what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Some translations will say human hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope in without God, say without God, in the world. But now, oh God, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's talk about this thing. We, I ain't got no points today. We're just going to walk the text. Is that cool? I want to just walk through this, and you'll get some type of points as we go along, but I just like what we, what's about to happen right now, all right? You know, Paul here dives into a remember section. In, in Pauline literature, he, he uses the idea of remember for Christians to help them remember and kind of place their mental state back in what it meant to be unconverted. And he wants them to be able to remember that state of a lack of conversion to help them to appreciate conversion. But not only to help them appreciate conversion, but practice why they were converted. So when you go to a, a Titus, chapter, Titus chapter 3, verse 2, you will see him walking through and working through remember. And he does that for missional engagement. You'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And you'll see him telling you, remember. He uses remember to help motivate Christians. So here we are again. And he gives them a great point of reference. And he said, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh <coughs> called the uncircumcision. Say uncircumcision. That means foreskin. He says, by what is called the circumcision, um, that points to um, without foreskin. And so here in this text, Paul is building the foundation for what was some of the reasonings behind what made Jews and Gentiles separate from one another. What, what, was some, what was a barrier between them? And he uses very particular language in this <coughs> to show the equality of lostness of both Jews and Gentiles, even though he's speaking specifically to Jews. Now, he says Gentiles in the flesh to say you were in the flesh. In other words, you were Gentiles according to your physical DNA. And culturally, you were non-Jewish. But then he goes on and he says something crazy. He says, by what is, some translation will say the so-called circumcision. Now, you got to understand that when he uses the definite article to say the circumcision here, what he, what, he, what he does is point to a particular group of people that, uh, that, that depend on their flesh for their relationship with God. That's what the circumcision is. The, the circumcision is that group of people that say, because I've done this, God is in a relationship with me. And so he's, he, he basically says, and notice that the circumcision was made with human hands, which points to there's only been physical transformation, not spiritual transformation. And so, therefore, they use the legality of their familiarity with the covenant to kind of look down and be elitist towards Gentiles' lostness, not realizing that their lostness was just as equal, even though they were familiar with the right information. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 3, he says, we worship that which we know. Because he's talking about, they have been familiar with some things that we're going to talk about in a minute. And so now he's building a foundation <coughs> really for the Gentile to say, guess what? We were just as lost as you guys because if our heart isn't circumcised, we can, we, can, we can pierce our ears, we can circumcise our ears, our lips, our neck, whatever. It don't matter what you cut, what you snip on your body, but I'm just telling you, if your heart hasn't been circumcised, it has not been transformed by the gospel. And so here... 
You see them having pointing back and meditating on possible passages for using it as elitism like Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 10. Where it says, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord. So they probably listen to that like, man, I don't want to be like that. So let's make sure that we're in right standing before God. But then he goes on to verse 12. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time in this section. And this is where the five degrees of separation are going to be laid out for us. And so we see here, he says, remember that you were at at that time separated from Christ. Good, 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 good. (laughs) Got a little frog right there. I wanted to come up. Um, Separated from Christ now. What's interesting is he doesn't mean it in the sense that we necessarily think of it. He means it in the sense of familiarity with the shadow. Let me explain that. Now, from from verse 1 all the way up to verse 10, verse 1 of chapter 1, all the way up to verse 10 of chapter 2, we've seen a statement of in Christ being a consistent statement that's laid out throughout Pauline material. This idea of in Christ points to the location and sphere in which God is actively redeeming. And this is where he's active and working and causing stuff to happen for his namesake and for his glory to to, to, to point to something. So when you go back, though, when he talks about being separated from Christ, he does not necessarily use it here to talk about it in that way. But from Genesis to Revelation, God, those are trailers. Genesis to Malachi were trailers. Now, these trailers were progressively revealing a person that only was casted in shadow but not reality. So in in Genesis, it starts casting a shadow of this person that no one really understood, but all they knew is that God was pointing towards him. So in Genesis, you see Jesus being pointed to. In Exodus, you see Jesus being pointed to. Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus, all the way through law prophets writing, all the way through Tanakh, um, they were pointing to Jesus Christ and casting a shadow of what it would be to be in a relationship with him, what it would be like for him to cause redemption, but it was bringing it in little sneak previews of different things that God did in redemptive history. Say redemptive history. Yeah, so, so, so like, I, it's this, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a gamer, heavy gamer, but there, there's two video games I like. I like Street Fight, Super Street Fighter 4, and I like The Force Unleashed. Now, you got to understand, before The Force Unleashed came out, you know, they just did, they did the first little picture. They just had two lightsabers lit up. I was like, oh, can't wait till that joke come out. Then next thing I know, they got this other one where, you know, um, they, they showed a little bit more of a trailer, a little short trailer, like a minute. I was angry than a mug. I was like, I'm ready for the game to come out, right? So then they make a little bit of a longer trailer, then a longer trailer, and then all of a sudden, they brought out the entire game. In other words, every time I saw a new trailer, it made me more excited about when they brought out what they were pointing to. See, what the Old Testament did was it was supposed to progressively nurture the covenant member's heart to not have more confidence in the law, not have more confidence in the flesh, not have more confidence in their desires, not have more confidence in their past, but have confidence in the one who all of the prophets were saying, look at him. He's coming one day. Pointing to, now you got to understand, during redemptive history, that's when God was sending sneak previews of coming attractions, the Gentiles were only sporadically included in on this idea of redemptive history of trailers. In other words, they didn't have internet access to the Bible at that time. <coughs> they had dial-up. Slow modem. They ain't coming through. They waited for years for... <laughs> For that joint to download. (laughs) And so here he says, you are without Christ. Meaning, when you don't have a picture of redemption, you create one. I'll talk about that when we get to no hope. But then he goes and he begins. Let me, let me, before I move on, I want to explain redemptive history. There's, 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 there's written redemptive history and there's unwritten redemptive history. Stay with me because I'm telling you, you need doctrine. 
Redemptive history refers to the increasing manifestation. I like that. Manifestation just make me feel God's spirit. I just like that. That's my charismatic overtones coming out. <laughs> Woo! Manifestation of God's plan of salvation through his, redempt- his acts of redemption. It says each of God's past redemptive acts of uh, 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 acts is part of the development of his plan to restore lost sinners into communion and relationship with him. The Old Testament, <coughs> the Old Testament promises, types, and messianic prophecies all pointed forward to the coming of Messiah in whom God's purposes of redemption would be ultimately re- fulfilled. What does redemption mean? Redemption means to buy back and to use it for better uses than what it was being used for in that current state before redemption touched it. (laughs) These means shadowed forth to the Old Testament saints, the one and only way of salvation through the substitutionary, penal substitutionary death of the Lamb of God known as Jesus Christ. And so all of that pointed in some way to him in types and shadows. So he says Gentiles didn't have access to that. Then he goes to the next degree of separation. He was, number one, separated from Christ. Number two, he says, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, he's talking about you didn't have access to the beauty of what it meant to be in theocentric community. <clears throat> in other words, people would create communities all over the planet, but they wouldn't create communities that were central to the coming of Christ. So therefore, like the Tower of Babel, because of the fall, they tried to create unity without God. And I'm just telling you, whenever you try to create unity without God, he serves notice to it and he wants to destroy it. Because he, he doesn't like you having a principle of him without him. See, the principle of community was good, but the practice of the community wasn't because it didn't have the theological premise of the one who should be central in community. So therefore, they were alienated from what it meant to have God saturate all of your life. Wow. So, the, so, 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 so there, was, there was no commonality. There was no understanding of covenant. There was no understanding of morality. There was no understanding of government. There was no real true understanding of family. There was no understanding of maleness. There was no understanding of biblical femininity because there was no redemptive information, no redemption, and no redemptive community to live among in order to be a springboard and an example to that. Now, the Jews were supposed to be missionaries, but they liked their community a lot. They liked being around each other all the time. They was on one another, but not on mission. And so the commonwealth of Israel, we were alienated from what it meant to have true community. Number number three, and we're going to spend some time on this. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. Let me me stay here for a while because it's a lot of these, and I want to explain them and make sure you understand them. When I I engage... um, guys of other religions and talk to them, hopefully mercifully and graciously. I'm telling you, I've grown so much because I'm telling you, I was bazooka dude. I'm just letting you know. I was, I mean, listen, I, Lord have mercy. If you didn't agree, I would just, I would just pull out just like um, one of the things that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in the first Predator, you know what I'm saying, the thing that spin around with like nine holes in it and I just put the bullets in and uh, you don't agree? All right. <laughs> Tan up trees, people, I mean, just everything, right? And so I, I, one of the things that I, I'm, I'm growing in and still growing in is how to lovingly communicate Jesus to people who don't know him. We all need to learn that, right? But, but, but this is what, every time, I get the, every time somebody stubs me, I get excited when I get to study. And one of the things that I've been, I, I've, I have fun, especially with my Muslim friends, is explaining to them the continuity of testaments. The, 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 when I say continuity, listen, Christian, you don't understand how, how gorgeous the word of God is. You don't understand how all of these different books um, were written over a 1,500-year period by different people during different times and impacted by different cultures, yet they had a continuity doing like this. 
Even though they wrote different information and different genres, they wrote in poetic, they wrote in narrative, they wrote in all types of ways. They wrote in prophetic, they wrote in apocalyptic, but, it, but every form that they were writing in was just a finger pointing. And all of them kept doing like this, and then all of a sudden, when the canon became closed, we put it all together, and now we get to look at the beauty of a, un, a, 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 a rose just showing the beauty of Listen, I used to have these flowers on the outside of my house. And my mama called them morning glories. And the morning glories at night would be closed. But in the morning when the sun came up and the light began to hit it, it began to do like this. And then all of this stuff would come out of it and shoot its head up. And, and that's what understanding the revelation and covenants of God is like. It's like God shining light on it. And what happens is, is as light progressively gets shined on it, you get clarity. So let's, let's talk about these covenants of promise. Okay, this, this, let's talk about these covenants of promise. Now, the first promise is called the Edenic covenant. Say Edenic covenant. That, that you'll find that in, I think, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. And you'll find it in, uh, se- uh, uh, I'm about to say second something. Genesis chapter 2, <coughs> verses 15 through 25. God makes a covenant with your boy Adam. Your boy Adam and Eve get a nice little covenant made, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He says, have a, have a lot of sex. He said, I'm making a covenant with you to enjoy having sex with each other. Amen. Praise God for the Edenic covenant. Husband and wife, get it in. That's a covenant responsibility, husbands and wives, because Christ made that more clear, see? See, if, he, see, if before Christ he told them to have sex, then after Christ, I mean, what we so anyway, so <clears throat> with their wife and with her husband. Amen. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. Hallelujah. He created them. I ain't stepping on nobody's toes. I'm just talking about what the Bible says. So <clears throat> mankind created, but I do not want us, sidebar, to be homophobic and home homosexual bashers and clap. Because if you're a homosexual in here, we love you. And we're not here to celebrate God's glory at your expense. I just want to let you know that. So mankind's dominion and rule over all creation. He had dominion. Talk, you mean talk to a lion. Come in, man. You know what I'm saying? Come in, the lion come over. Back in the day, right? Mankind to be, to eat everything on the earth. Man had the freedom to do with the earth what he wanted to, <clears throat> right? Then we see the Adamic covenant slash curse. Now, this is interesting because in the Adamic covenant slash curse, stay with me, all this going somewhere is, remember, we were alienated from the covenants of promise. In order to you know what we were alienated from, we got to go back and look at them, okay? Genesis 3, 14 through 24, that's the fall. <clears throat> However, in the midst of the fall, he talks covenant language with them. A covenant is a legally abiding agreement between two or more people. And they have two ideals with it. They are conditional and unconditional. Conditional means you got to do something to keep the covenant. Unconditional says no matter what you do, God is going to keep it. So now we see that even under the covenant curse and fall, we see both ideas of uh, conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. Y'all still tracking with me? Okay, so... Immunity between, oh no, I'm going to get to that one last. Pain and childbirth. And God was gracious through natural revelation to provide epidurals, but originally, you know what I'm saying? I see the wives going, hey, hey, epidural on me. All right. So, okay, I see you wives. Amen. Thank God for epidurals. Wow, I ain't seen y'all shout like that in a long time. Anyway, God promised marital strife. He promised that husband and wife was going to beef. Wow. The soil was going to be cursed. That means I'm going to curse you so bad that you're not going to be able to be lazy. <laughs> Survival to be a struggle. Death induced. Dying you shall die. Death will be the inescapable fate of all living things. But then in the midst of that, see, God is good. In the midst of that, he says, I didn't know if Eve, she probably was so in tears she didn't hear it. He says, 
in verse 15 of chapter 3, he says, your seed will crush his head, but he shall bruise his heel. Pointing forward, the first prophetic presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the proto-euangelion, where God points that in the pre-incarnate Christ, Christ in his pre-incarnate form with his fly self was standing in front of Adam with his fly self, talking to Adam about himself. Saying, you know what? I'm going to be your seed. You don't even know it. I'm going to be born into your lineage. And then I'm going to make all of this eye. Matter of fact, I'm going to point you to it in another way. Let me kill an animal. Let me get rid of those dead fig leaves. Um, and now let me kill an animal pointing to a sacrifice. And then I'm going to clothe you with a temporary sacrifice until I come in a human form and be the actual sacrifice. So right now I'm going to put your sins on layaway, but then I'm going to come back and make the full payment. So it was conditional, but guess what else it was? Unconditional. That's the gospel. Then you have the Noahic covenant where God wipes out everybody through a flood. And he said, he put a rainbow out. Every covenant has a sign. And he put a rainbow up. The people that put, you know, rainbow is the, is the point to the covenant, right? But what's beautiful is God said, I'm not going to wash all the way like that again. Now, I am going to wipe people out another way called the lake of fire. He didn't say that here. But he did say, I'm never going to send a flood ever again. And it was a sign that God had made peace with destroying humanity. And being patient with them until redemption happens. Promises. Then the, one of the premier covenants of the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant. Verse, uh, Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis 17, and Genesis 18. God makes conditional and unconditional promises. But, but, but what he promises him is he gives him a sign. Circumcision is the sign pointing. Everything physical always points to something spiritual in God's economy. Okay, but what he did was he promised him land, seed, and blessing. Or blessing can also be redemption. <clears throat> and what he did, God, God allowed Abraham to cut a sacrifice in half. Then God gave him a sleeping pill, put him to sleep, and God walked through the two sacrifices, through the pre-incarnate Christ to say, I swear by myself. Because usually two people would swear. But God says, I swear on all of my eternality, everything that I am, I swear by grace, I swear by mercy, I swear by holiness, I swear by justice, I swear by my sovereignty that I am going to do exactly what I said I was going to do. Oh, somebody ought to be encouraged by that. And, 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 and guess what God himself was doing? Pointing to not only him swearing by himself, but dying as the one who was cut like that sacrifice. So we see the Adamic covenant. I mean, I mean, Abrahamic. Then you see the Palestinian covenant. Christians need to stop quoting this covenant, by the way, because um, in, in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, chapter 30, it points to blessings and cursings, and, and, and everybody emphasizes that for Christians today, no way. But 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 the focus of that covenant was to be a conditional covenant with blessings and cursings. Y'all still with me? Then, and then the sign of that was Sabbath. Sabbath was a sign, again, pointing forward to Hebrews chapter 4, when mighty Yahshua would come on the scene and say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Shabbat, Sabbath. And this will not only be one day of the week, I will give you an eternal Sabbath to rest from the labors of being on planet Earth. So it points, again, they're doing like this, pointing to Jesus, pointing to him. Sabbath is not something for Christians to argue about. It points to eternity with God. Then David came on the scene. Little ruddy, roughneck dude that was cute, the little girls like in Bethlehem. That's what the Bible says. Fighting lions and bears. It's a big, rough dude. 
you know, pretty boy, but rugged, right? Does the Bible say? Second Samuel 7, David is sitting on his throne in tears because prophet Nathan has come to him and brought him some beastly information about his future that really was bigger than him. And the Davidic covenant was promised. What God promised an eternal throne, an eternal house, and an eternal kingdom. And all the kings that came flunked. But then there would be one king that would come, crownless. And he would be the one who establishes this covenant of house, throne, kingdom, unconditionally by his own work to be eternal king, sit on an eternal throne, and have an eternal crib called the church, eternal house. But then all of those covenants, they, they, they focused on those covenants and loved the fulfillment of those covenants, but very few who, who were familiar with the covenants of promise looked at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, where God says, I will give you, I will take away the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will take the old spirit out of you, put a new spirit in you, put my spirit in you, and cause you to walk in my statutes. And this will be unconditional. Jesus, that's why Jesus says you must be born by both water and spirit. Sprinkle you clean with water, the text says, looking at pointing to the blood sacrifice, what they would do as a cleansing technique, spirit meaning his spirit and your spirit, your spirit being changed and his spirit being on you. That's what he meant by uh, unless you, you can't be born again unless you're born of water and spirit. That pointed to a beautiful thing that he would first announce in its name form, even though it was pointed to in principle form in Ezekiel 36 when he did communion. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. So now, Kakowski, all of those covenants now, now get fulfilled in one work through Christ. But we were alienated from that. Alienated from it being pointed to and alienated from seeing it happen. It's incredible, family. It's beautiful what God does through Christ. <clears throat> I get, I, I, we had a guy um, uh, convert to Christianity. He became a Messianic Jew. And he came to me and he started talking to me. He said, Pastor, I can't believe what just happened to me this week. I said, what? He said, you know, man, I was, I, I, you know, I, I would step out of the church, out of the gathering when y'all would do communion. I would come, I was just curious. But communion would go around all the time. And, I, you know, I was Jew, so, you know, I ain't in no drinking blood and eating flesh. You know, that's against our stuff. But I, I was going, as y'all were going through the book of John, <coughs> he said, I began seeing Jesus. And then I trusted him. Then I sat in communion this time. And he said, then when the plate went around, I saw matzah. I said, oh, unleavened bread. He said, yes, pastor. That's Hebrew for unleavened bread. And he said, everything opened up to me at that moment. The feast of booths and tabernacles. The Passover lamb, Yom Kippur, everything opened up to me. And I saw all of that fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And when I looked at communion, Everything was clear to me. Beautiful. Pointing to alienation. And matter of fact, you see, Timothy was raised by his grandmama and his mama in the covenants. First Timothy 3.14 says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. So when he heard the gospel in Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 23, he trusted Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, and everything made, made clear to him. Then by the time two chapters come over, chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, now Paul's taking him on a missionary trip because everything's clear to him. And so we were alienated from that. But then that's what he says. He says, having no hope. Hope is the visionary picture of a preferred divine future. Hope is the visionary picture of a preferred divine future cast by God. Now, if you don't have hope, 
That means you don't have one of the three pillars of the Christian faith, faith, hope, love. So we were without hope. Why? Because we were alienated from the covenants of promise without the commonwealth of Israel, and we had no knowledge of Christ. Therefore, there was no shadow casting. Therefore, there was nothing to look forward to and hope for. And therefore, when there is no hope, man creates substandard forms of hope. They hope in relationships. Hope in chicks and dudes. They hope in loot. They hope in careers. They hope in false religion, false gods. Getting twisted, sipping syrup, getting nice. Everything else is a hope. But what's interesting here is that it says we had no hope. Even the things that we tried to hope in wasn't hope, so therefore it was not hope. Therefore, we can't replace true hope with false hope unless you've been endowed with the truth of comprehensive hope found in Jesus. But then he goes and he says, and without God in the world. <laughs> now, 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 the Greek word here is an interesting word. Actually, without God is actually one word in the Greek. It's atheos. Say atheos. Yeah, it's, this word is the word where we get our word atheist from. Atheist doesn't merely mean a person that doesn't believe that there is a God. In, in the Bible, an atheist is anyone that does not have Jesus. Because they're not connected with the true God, even if they have a God, they don't have God, therefore they don't believe in God because they're atheists without him. So every one of us was structural, functional atheists. Even if you say, well, I believe in God but not Jesus, you're an atheist. That's what the Bible says. You know what I'm saying? All of us were atheists without God. And notice it says in the world. Wow. So we're in darkness without God, just walking around, running into stuff. Without God. And it's funny, culturally, the Gentiles were called the Jews, atheos. That's why he, is this, this would have been funny to them. Because the Gentiles were called Jews, atheos, because they believed in one God. If you don't believe in the gods, then you are an atheist because you only believed in one. But then they called them atheists because they didn't believe in the true God. But now God calls all of us atheists because none of us were in Christ. <laughs> Phenomenal. And so now he goes down and he says something gorgeous. He says, but now. Oh, God. He's talking about a change of state here. He says, but now in Christ, <clears throat> you who once were far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. <clears throat> so at one point, we were far off. No peace offering, no thanksgiving offering, no free will offering. But Christ became a sin offering for all of us. Because the Bible says that life is in the blood. And when Jesus died, he gave his life. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, says, plural, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. When his flesh was torn, it pointed to when the temple was torn from, the curtain was torn from top to bottom, just as Jesus' flesh was torn. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, there is no pastor that's a high priest over the house of God. There's only one high priest. There's only one chief shepherd. One, one, one. Anybody that claims it is false, foul, and funky, there's only one true priest over the house of God. There are, there's a community of priests, the royal priesthood, but there's only one high priest over the priesthood. Somebody ought to hear me. He says, now, in light of this reality, let us draw near with a true heart. Why? Because you have the new covenant, and now your heart has been circumcised in full assurance that you won't get blasted like the high priest would have. If he came in there funky, that's why they tied a rope around his leg, because ain't nobody going in to get him if God makes him drop dead. So we're going to snatch him out of there, but who's going to go get him? But now, that was only a copy of the true temple. So Jesus unfearfully went into the holy place bleeding, bleeding. Now, he bled his way in from the outer court to the inner court to the holies of holies, carrying his life to God. As his blood spilled, he created a red carpet. Now that those who believed in him, we walk into the leaked blood of Jesus into the presence of God. 
So you can go with full assurance. You can go with full assurance. You can take advantage of it. You ain't got to depend on grandmama's prayers no more. Grandmama prayed for me. No, go in yourself. So by the time you get then, and it's raining while you're going in there too, and it's raining blood. So by the time you get before God, he don't see you. He see his son asking him for something. <laughs> and, and, and he edits our prayers to make them will worthy. Oh, my God. And, 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 and then he sends it back to us and transforms the whole thing. And we realize, I didn't pray for that, but you got more than you prayed for many times. Somebody ought to hear me. You got more than you prayed for, and you got what you didn't pray for because God is not for your good merely, but he's about his glory. And his glory is more important than your pain. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Don't be punks. For he who promised is faithful, consistent when we're not consistent. But then I like Matthew 20. I'm going to end on this. I'm going to sit down. I like this parable. I call this the gangster parable. I like it. It's a gangster parable, man. Look at this joint right here. It says in Matthew 20, verse 1, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus, is this, Jesus never defines the kingdom. He only tells you what the kingdom is like to give you a picture of it. Because the picture is too big to put in a statement. Anyway. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house <coughs> who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, did a contract. It says he sent in them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, that's after the ones that already started working, was working already. <laughs> Some hours later, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same every three hours, right? And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others. This is late now. Standing. It's like the Latinos standing out in front of uh, Home Depot. And they get them to work. That's what, that's what they did in that day. This is, I mean, I'm, I'm not being funny. This is serious. And he, said, and, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. <coughs> Beginning with the last up to the first. And when... Those hired about the 11th hour, those were the last people hired. Each of them received a denarius. That's some nice loot. Now, when those hired first came, they, th uh, they thought they could receive more. Because they were like, look, we've been here all day. If they got a denarius, we're about to get some crazy loot, right? It's a gangster parable, I told you. And it says, and thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the denarius. So they're like, how are you going to pay me like that? I've been working longer. I've been in this thing longer than them. He says, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only an hour. How are you going to pay them like you paid us, basically? And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and in the scorching heat. But he replied to, them, all, to every one of them. He said, come here. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Oh, don't you base all this base in your voice? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Yeah, we did. You signed a contract? Yeah. Take what belongs to you and get out my face. I chose to give to this last worker as I give to you. I am not allowed to do, am I not allowed to do what I want, when I want, and how I want um, to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Attention, Gentiles. Even though you were alienated from the covenant, even though you weren't familiar with the commonwealth of Israel, even though you were far off with Christ and you didn't know anything about it, God paid for our sins 
equally with equal access, equal benefits, equal promises, equal community, and equal opportunity to be with him forever. And so now, by the blood of Christ, by the glory of Christ, by the beauty of Christ, each and every one of there is no more, no more important people in the kingdom. There are no VIPs. All are VIPs. And so, brag if you want to, but let him in boast in, who boasts boast in this, that he knows the Lord. Get your swagger down, glory up. Repeat after me, swagger down, glory up. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your glory. We thank you that none of us worked. The Jews got the look, and we got in late. But thank you that we got in. And all of this is the point to your unity that you call your church to. I mean, the doctrine of unity in its theological principles impact our ability to serve you more effectively in the glory of Christ. And if someone's here and they don't know Lord Yahshua, you are still under alienation, just as many of us were. God calls you to repent and turn towards the one who created the new covenant by dying on the cross for our sins. He made him who knew no sin become sin on our behalf. If you want to be walked through what it means to trust Jesus Christ as Savior, we have some cards on those back tables out there where the offering baskets are in the lobby. We want you to fill them out, and we want to talk to you about what it means to go from not a people to a people. God, we love you. We honor you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.